gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you need this. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from Archer, their special guest, head of content marketing and product education at Apollo.io, Josh Garrison. Josh, how are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. How are you? How's everybody else? We are thrilled to have you on the show, thrilled to talk Archer, talk Apollo, and some really cool stuff that you're doing in content and marketing and beyond. So why the heck did you want to talk about Archer today? Oh, I love Archer. I don't know that I've ever laughed harder and more consistently than I did the first time I watched season one of Archer. And maybe it's because I was like a 21-year-old boy, you know, and still in my mind, a 13-year-old boy. I'm a grown man, Lana. I didn't run away from home. I carjacked a limo. But I just think they did so many things well, and they've had such sustained success that there's a lot, there's a lot to learn from there. I love Archer. It's one of my all-time favorite shows. I don't, not never, but I, I rarely watch animated shows and and I watch Archer pretty much when whenever the new stuff comes out. And it is like the perfect type of medium for animated shows. So I'm so happy that you chose it because there's so many different ways that we can go out of it. And it's about work and it's a workplace comedy. And that's what every single marketer is trying to figure out because we all have little workplace comedies that we're trying to market. That's true. You know, it's funny. You're so right. But in my I don't even think of Archer as a workplace comedy, like until I actually think about it, right? I'm like, oh, it's a spy. But obviously it's not just, it's not really a spy thriller. It's The Office, but with spies. Also, yes. Why do you think it's so remarkable? What is it about it that makes it remarkable? Yeah, I think Archer is willing to do the unexpected. And I think like I've heard this called like pattern interruption, like to your point about sort of workplace comedies, like we have very much gotten used to The Office and Parks and Rec and I don't know, there are probably others like all of 30 Rock maybe, but all of these other sitcoms that take place in a similar environment and they don't involve somebody like getting shot or a gun going off in your underwear for no reason or rolling up a call girl, girl in a rug and throwing her in, a, in the trunk. Like Archer just goes way past the limits of what you would expect way more often and frequently. I'm sorry, Framboise, it's not you. I, I mean, it's not me either, obviously. I think that's part of what makes it hilarious. 
there's this like comedic device where you want to build your jokes run into one another. One joke leads to the next joke to the next joke. And you're sort of like building laughter throughout. And I think Archer just maintains that momentum really well. The first time you laugh within 30 seconds, there's another joke and another joke and another joke. And by the end of it, you know, depending on if it's into, it's your style or not, my face is hurting. I've just been laughing so much. I love the idea of pattern interruption because I didn't realize that it was something that I love so much about the show. And then going back and watching it, they do the thing where they set up a joke and then the punchline of the joke is a cut scene to someone else saying it. And it's like they do callbacks every episode. They use this interruption over and over and over again every single episode. Each episode always has callbacks within it. They have callbacks that go back to previous episodes. It feels so lived in. All of the characters are so like defined and refined in the way that they do that stuff. And I think that it's just a brilliant way to keep pace, like you're mentioning. Like it's such a fast show. You're right. And it's that I love that device where they like set up the joke and then they change scenes and somebody else finishes it. That it just it works on so many levels. It keeps things moving, right? But it also like you can make jokes that way that you would get canceled for making in a different way. I think or maybe Archer would get canceled if it came out today for the first time. Like probably. I I'm not sure. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's tough to it's tough to know because it's done. I think it's crafted like really well. And we just did an episode about The Office. And one of the things that The Office, I think, has the same thing where it probably could have gotten canceled. But the reason why it didn't is it has this consistency and... Well, first of all, the reason why is because it has an audience. (laughs) So let's be real there. The first reason why is because people love it. But I think that people are looking for that, especially in animated, where you can say anything and you can animate anything. And I think that they've done that really well. Agreed. Another thing about Archer, I think, is the sort of like this like minimalistic style of the way that they illustrate the show. And I think that it's so cool the way they use colors and characters, the way they borrow from James Bond and all the spy stuff and Mission Impossible. And you can tell all that, but it's this minimalistic style. The reason why I've, our design team has been working on styles like these because we're doing some homage to that in our upcoming murder mystery thriller, Murder in HR. And so we've been looking at a lot of that style recently. And it's so simple looking, but it's actually really hard to do. And I think that they, it's just a beautiful show. It is. And it's spawned many imitators. I think Archer is kind of like it created a, you know, a new flavor of animation. I see a lot of comic book influence in the Archer style as well. Right. And it's sort of like, it is very unique, but it also feels familiar because they're calling back to things that you've seen and read throughout, you know, your early life probably. But I love that point. I think I've seen this, you know, even making content, whether it's I make comic books outside of work, but whether it's at work or outside of work, like what looks easy because it's simple and it's clean is not easy. It's like watching a gymnast or, you know, Michael Jordan or a basketball player dunk. It's like, oh, yeah, that looked easy. It's like this is really not. They just made it look easy. Look, don't worry. I can handle it. But I also love how they use the style to sort of create an ambiguity in the timeline. Like, when does Archer take place? There are some seasons where it's very clear, right? Where it's like, this is the 20th season. But the first season of Archer, that could be anywhere from like 1950 to 1985. And they leave it sort of deliberately ambiguous. And I think that illustration style like gave them a lot of leeway to do that. Zooming back out, Meredith, what the heck is Archer? 
Oh, so Archer is an animated TV series and it parodies espionage culture. So it's about this James Bond-esque spy who's like narcissistic and macho. Look at me. I am the perfect gentleman. Uh, his name is Sterling Archer and mostly referred to just as Archer in the show. But he works in a dysfunctional intelligence agency and it's headed by his own mother. Well, I hope you're happy. No, I'm not, mother. So that adds some drama to it. And as Josh, you kind of already mentioned, the timing of it is somewhat ambiguous. It's sort of set in this Cold War-ish era universe and as you guys said, it's a highly stylized animation. It looks kind of like the classic comic books that you guys mentioned. It also reminds me of those old G.I. Joe cartoons that I remember seeing in like, I think they were in the 80s. But it does have that sort of nostalgic effect. The animators describe the style as sort of puppety. And so they make a limited number of drawings and then they put rotation points at like the joints and his elbows and things like that. So it's, it's a very minimalist style of animation. And that's kind of like a way for them to meet tight timelines and to save money too. It's an economic way of, you know, not having to make as many drawings. The show was originally and is created by Adam Reed. It's made by Trinity Animation and the voice of Archer is played by H. John Benjamin, but it also includes the voices of Jessica Walter, who I love from Arrested Development. She's the mom. R.I.P. The best. To our queen. Yeah. Rest in peace. <laughs> That's right. Aisha Tyler from Criminal Minds and Chris Parnell from SNL, among others. There are lots of recurring characters that come in and out. It originally aired in 2019, and it's set to release, I think it's 14th season this August, so it's been going a long time. It's won so many awards, including three primetime Emmys and so on. But yeah, super popular series. As a side note, this is completely anecdotal, but I feel like part of the reason why this show is uncancelable is because Jessica Walter is maybe the funniest person in human history, and she is absolutely unhinged in this show. And from the first minute... She is so, so funny. And paired with Sean Benjamin, who's who's an amazing voice actor, Aisha Tyler, who's like amazing, and Chris Parnell, it's like they have just such a superstar cast for this. I mean, again, things get canceled all the time, but I, I, I imagine an executive going to Jessica Walter and saying that they're canceling her show. No way. At least that happened no for us as well. <laughs> Needless to say. Multiple True. times for Arrested Development, right? But yeah, it always too, came too back. Sure. It kept coming back. Oh my God, it's all coming back to me now. I do think that, you know, as with all these type of shows, like it's so clear in its vision and its execution and style and the characters, I think perhaps more than other shows even, I think the first season, like the characters are so thought out and well-rounded already from the jump i think that they did really like remarkable character development for the for the main characters obviously they all go you know turned up to an 11 throughout the rest of the you know the season and everybody gets so much more ridiculous and they have all these other arcs do you think that's wise <laughs> what the hell is your problem but i do think that they started off with just ridiculously complex like well-rounded characters. And I think that that, that also helps, helps the show from when you first meet it, you sort of understand all of these characters really well. Yeah, they found a way to get that immediately, right? The first time you meet every character, you get the essence of that character and there's just sort of no wasted time there. I gotta get my turtleneck. What the? I'm not defusing a bomb in this. And the other thing I thought that they did really well that I really loved, which is so hard to do, is none of the characters actually change ever really. 
right? Yeah. Like they, they go through a bunch of different things. A lot of different stuff happens, but the core of who they are stays completely unchanged no matter what happened to them. And that you can start in the middle of a season that you haven't seen and just, you know, pick it up instantly because they're not kind of playing into that, I think, wrong mentality that there has to be an arc and a development and a, and a growth. Like, I think that's true in a movie, but in a TV series, you want to start over fresh every episode. I don't know if you've ever heard that George R. R. Martin, that the way that he started writing Game of Thrones was he like loved Tolkien and he loved Lord of the Rings and he, all that stuff. And he was fascinated by like, how, how do they pay taxes? Like, what's the tax system? And he's like, what if, you know, basically like, I'm going to create a world where like, just like Lord of the Rings, but there's but actual tax. taxes that have to get paid. And like, how do you run a kingdom like that? And that's kind of like what I feel about Archer and James Bond is that you have this, like, what if James Bond was in an actual company of people? What if James and Bond had an HR department? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a, a screenwriting professor I had in college explain it this way. He said, there's only two ways to be funny. You put extraordinary people in ordinary situations and ordinary people in extraordinary situations. And Archer is like very squarely like extraordinary people in this quote unquote ordinary, like work, you know, this like spy and these like really borderline personalities, these like really crazy people in this office environment. And it just never fails to be funny. I have to go, but if I find one single dog here when I get back, I'll rub sand in your dead little eyes. Very good, sir. Yeah, one of the other things that they do with Archer specifically, who is like the biggest narcissist of all time, is that they do the same thing again where you look at something like James Bond where this person's clearly a narcissist, but they're so good at your job. This is sort of like another classic storytelling technique is, and I don't know who said this, but basically you can make someone really bad, but as long as they're like the best person at their thing in the world, then the audience will forgive them and they want to root for them. <laughs> Another win for the greatest spy on earth. So I think there's a little bit of Archer there, especially early on where he's the best spy in the world and he happens to be working at this tiny agency for his mother, but he's like super narcissistic and he's like pretty mean and very self-serving with like everything he does. But there's this element of heart to him. Like he loves animals. He loves these little things. He has you know, a real affinity to certain people at his work, even though there's sort of like he despised them in some way. And it just makes him that much more lovable. And you forgive any of the bad stuff that he does, considering he's killing like tons of people every single episode, these faceless bad, bad guys. And I think that, uh, again, it's like you forgive all of that because you're like, well, he's the best spy in the world. That's just that's just how he is. And he feels like, you know, kind of like your asshole friend, but he's our asshole for sure. Josh, okay, so marketing takeaways. We mentioned pattern interruption. How could marketers think about using pattern interruption in their marketing? Well, yeah, I think pattern interruption for sure. I think also the other thing Archer does is like, give me the same thing but different, which maybe we could come back to and talk about in a second. So for pattern interruption, I don't know if you guys encounter this, but in B2B marketing, it's almost like marketers are bored of our own playbooks. They're like, oh man, like a webinar? I'm doing another webinar? Or they're like, oh, we got to write an ebook, another, another ebook. Maybe you're lame. We've like, we've sort of fallen out of love with the things that everybody learned when they went through HubSpot Inbound the first time, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. Right. And as we should, like those things are, they're old. Those are old ideas. 
But that doesn't mean that those things don't work anymore. And I think for for me, like when I explore pattern interruption, it's like, okay, I'm still going to run a webinar. Like I got to do that. That's just part of what my job is and what my audience wants. But in that webinar, like how can I subvert the expectation? How can I set something up for people to think they're going to get one thing in a good way and then give them something that's way more than they hoped for and way more than they bargained for and like just go beyond. So that was one thing that stood out to me about Archer's like, the timing is so impeccable and the, as we discussed, right. And the jokes cascade one to the other. It's like, it's choreographed in a way, like very intensely choreographed. And I think our audiences, like there's so much good stuff to watch on YouTube and on TV and just everywhere you look, there's quality content that if you're making marketing content, you have to make it really, really good. And so if you are going to do a webinar, like you have to interrupt that pattern where people are like, yeah, I'm going to go to a webinar. I'm going to mute everything and like, you know, have my calendar show that I'm at this webinar, but not actually be working for an hour. Like you have to put out content that's so engaging, that's so good, that's so choreographed, that's so snappy, that has a joke or two here or there that subverts people's expectation, that keeps them hooked and that just keeps them watching. And it's easier said than done. And I don't know, you know, maybe that's not a good example. I think Archer does a a lot of great, like specific inappropriate jokes with pattern interruption, which I'm not recommending you do as a B2B marketer. But I think there are elements from that that you can take and inject into your marketing that we try and do some of at Apollo and and it's been working for us. And we're going to get into that here in one second. I just wanted to expand on that a little bit because I think that this is a great point that the pace of an archer of a 22 minute episode that the reason why this 22 minute episode structure for sitcoms is so important is it has to get you to the commercial and it has to get you back from the commercial. So there's actually multiple cliffhangers throughout the episode and there's super quick cuts on this show specifically that get you from A story to B story to C story, or usually it's just like an A and a B story and they go back and forth. And like, again, that's hard to do in in B2B marketing, but if you can set up and tease things that are coming, if you can use a random crazy slide to catch people's attention, if you can zig while everybody else is zagging, are you out of your mind? If it isn't all the same monotone deck with the same branding, with the same font, with the same everything, every single time, if it isn't the same, hey, everybody comes on and, and sets up and, hey, we're going to get started here in a few minutes and then we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And like it, all that stuff, like if you can be a, a little bit faster, if you can get your turns or your transitions a little faster, that stuff works. And then I think the other thing there is in terms of consistency, and this is something that we do when we build our series, is like repeatability and consistency do win and things like having segments work really well. Like those things actually work. Signposting your listeners so that they know what you're going to expect, that stuff works. Like there's a reason why some of the most popular like series of all time have segments is so that you know what is coming. And like, we know what is coming in Archer because we know that we're going to get these, you know, multiple breaks that go into a commercial. Even if you're not watching a commercials, like there's these setups, there's tension that's built. It leads you into the next thing. It keeps you hooked. Like those are the lessons of the 22 minute sitcom in general. And for Archer, obviously they do a fantastic job. hundred percent. So Josh, tell us, what is your content marketing strategy? How do you think about it for Apollo? It's bold to assume I have a strategy and I'm not just (laughs) shooting from the hip over here. No, just kidding. 
I'm, I kind of have a strategy. So I think for us, we have a lot, a lot of goals that are sort of handed down to the content marketing team that inform our strategy. So maybe I'll start with those. So on the one hand, I, as I mentioned, I, I run content marketing, but I also run product education. So I have some goals that are maybe atypical for content marketing to have that are structured around activation and retention. And I think most content marketing that I've done in the past or that I've seen done is really more about net new acquisition or maybe upsells here or there, right? But so for us, we have, yes, net new acquisition as well as like upgrade and upsell, but also activation and retention. So, so you have basically entire life cycle. The whole life cycle, exactly. That's cool. And that's what I was going to say. Like, I really have to consider the entire life cycle of our audience and our customer base. And so that's like one goal. And then the second goal is to help our company very slowly move up market. And, you know, I think Apollo is like the dominant player in the very small business space and like solopreneur, you know, really tiny sales team. If that describes you and you do sales, like, yeah, you probably use Apollo. But if you get into a team that's a little bigger, there's a lot more diversity in the market. So our strategy really comes down to something that I learned from being in sales for most of my career, which is that if salespeople will engage with anything that will make them money, that's just like all that it is. That's what it comes down to for them. So that's like the guiding principle of our content marketing strategy is like, we're always put yourself in the shoes of a salesperson and ask yourself, like, by looking at this, like, before I commit to reading it or watching it, am I convinced based on the headline or the title or whatever, this description, that this is going to bring enough value to me to help me improve my ability to make money? So we start there. That's actually a pretty high bar. It's like, it's really hard to do. It means that you can't make any fluff because fluff doesn't make anybody money even I think the people who write it, especially them. But so if we kind of move from that like guiding principle in terms of our strategy, so like how do we do that, right? I think on the one hand, it's find the best salespeople in the world and talk to them and learn from them and broadcast that out to your audience because that's something that everyone is always trying to do in sales. It's like, who's the top performing rep? What are they doing? How can I do that? But take that and apply that on a bigger scale. So that's something that we've been doing. We have an original series called Meet the World's Best Sellers which is really targeted for individual salespeople to learn from other really successful salespeople. You've always been insanely jealous of my friends. But then if we scale that up and we speak to that goal of how do you move up market, we have to do the same thing, but at an organizational level. So we just dropped a new piece for on our magazine and that's like our blog is called the Apollo Magazine. So we just dropped a new piece on our magazine called Inside Sales at HubSpot. So what we're doing there is we found a VP a director, a mid-level manager, and an individual contributor who's like a President's Club winner, all at HubSpot. And we interviewed them to try and figure out like, how does that organization work? Like, not only what is its structure, but how do the gears turn? Like, what makes HubSpot HubSpot? How did HubSpot sell its way to its dominant market position? And I think there's a lot of lessons to learn there as a founder or as a VP of sales, where you know, maybe you are at a 20 person sales org and like, you probably have, a, there's, there's something to learn from a HubSpot, you know, the HubSpots of the world. So I think on the one hand, it's that it's like, take the audience's goals and work backwards from it at a high level, like on the thought leadership side and nothing is gated. It's just like become a valuable destination for our audience. That's, that's my strategy. That's my goal. On the other side, the, the product education side, like the retention and activation side, it's taking those like 
jobs to be done of like the things that salespeople are trying to accomplish, but translating that very tactically into like, this is exactly how to do it. I think this is where a lot of marketing falls apart for me is like, it's easy. You know, you can search, do a Google search and you're like how to be good at sales. And it's like a bunch of generic nonsense, right? It's like, learn, you know, do discovery, like learn how to talk to people. But what we try and do is go two steps further than that. And it's like, Hey, this is, I'm going to open up Apollo. I'm going to show you exactly what to do. Click here, click here, click here. This is why, this is how to do it. Something that's so actionable that by the time somebody finishes engaging with a piece of content, whether it's a video or a webinar or something else that we've made a knowledge base article, they have gained a new skill. And I think that's good for them. And, and obviously that's good for us. So I don't know if, you know, that was like a long winded answer. I don't have like a pithy strategy, unfortunately, but those are the guiding principles around how we work. I think you have many pithy strategies. I love the idea of everybody leaves with something they can do that will make the money as your North Star. I think that that is just such a smart approach. You know, something we believe as as core to like the next generation of content is that like people want to learn from their peers. Like, yes, they want like how to's and they want guides and they want all that stuff. But at the end of the day, like they want a human attached to it. I think that there's a long conversation there about like AI's role in that, because at the end of the day, like I would just rather use your playbook like then then a playbook that ai could come up with not that that's like the only use for ai but but those are the sort of things like i would just rather just like learn from my peers because they're the ones at the ground or you know on the ground actually doing those things and that strategy needs to meet a go-to-market needs to meet a chief revenue officer and a cfo and a cmo and all those people that have a huge sway in whether this gets made or not. So I just love that North Star and you can always go back to it. And it's a really, really cool idea. Yeah, it's it's worked for us so far. Obviously, the jury's still out and there's lots of opportunity for me to mess this up. But I think we've seen a positive reaction from our audience, which is really heartwarming. And it's actually Josh, really like, I, yeah, what? The, the, the jury's still out on every marketer that's that right. still has a job. <laughs> you know, like uh, all of your previous work just got you to this point. So the fact that you right. you've done so well already, which we're going to get into, is uh, is a testament to the to the early work that you've done. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Yeah, you mentioned building a webinar program. You built a webinar program in a previous company that is was wholly unique. And at Apollo, you rebuilt the webinar program. How did you do that? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So the first thing that I did was I I took webinars on myself, meaning that like I booted out every other presenter and every other participant from our webinar program. Are you out of your mind? And I turned them into something that I make myself because I, I felt like I had to establish the baseline. So for us, I sort of came up with a, like I have a formula, you know, going back to Archer, I think Archer has a formula, right? And it just runs that formula back every season, but with a slightly different flavor and people keep coming back because the formula works. I think content marketing is the same way. It's all storytelling. It's just a different format. Webinars are the same way. So for me, the formula was I'm going to do 15 minutes of slides, which is thought leadership, but it's going to be like no fluff, no nonsense. I'm just going to I'm going to lay out what you actually need to know about whatever the topic is that we're doing. And then I'm going to give you 15 minutes of how to actionably implement what I just covered in the product. So you're going to get the thought leadership first, then you're going to get here's how to implement. And then we're going to do 15 minutes of Q&A. And that always ends up bleeding over. Like that's my ideal timeline is a 45 minute webinar. We always end up going almost to the top of the hour and I'm the presenter. So I started this reboot of this program by like 
I made the deck. I wrote the copy for the web pages, for the email invites, for the follow-up emails. Like I diagrammed out how the weed flow works to sales. And like, I just sort of did everything. And then the mandate that I made for my team was like, every webinar we do after this has to be better because you guys are going to help me. And that's the one that I did. And like, that's, that was just me, right? So like, that's the minimum, that's the minimum viable product. So what ended up happening, like in the way that I do these, you know, talking about Archer, which is like scripted and rehearsed and like quick cuts, I rehearse a webinar. And this is something that like was very obvious to me as somebody who has a background as a musician and has spent a lot of time, you know, as a, as a writer, it's like, of course you rehearse. But when I got into marketing for the first time, people were just wild. And it was like, yeah, we've got a webinar and people just show up completely unprepared. And of course it's boring or they're just like reading off of a slide deck where there's like a million lines of text in the deck. Like I might go through 80 slides in a 15 minute period because there's like so little content on every slide, but everything is moving so fast that the audience is super engaged. Right. So I actually rehearse our webinars like two or three times at least before I'd run the webinar. And what that lets me do is engage with the audience while we're doing it. I'm sort of off script or off book. It's what we used to call it like in the theater, right? So I would say I'm a little bit of a maniac when it comes to like preparation and the, the responsibility I feel to the audience. I'm like, hey, they're gonna spend an hour with me. I feel really responsible that the content is good. What the net result ended up being was we went from an average registering count of like 2000 to now we break 7,500 regularly. And we went from, you know, 500 to 800 attendees. Now we get 2,500 people live, 1,500 people in the 24 hours after, two to 3,000 people watching on YouTube in the two weeks after that, just on their own. Like we don't promote the YouTube. They just like find it and watch it. <laughs> Mind blown. And what we've gotten from that is also now like a following where people will email proactively and they'll be like, when is your next webinar? Neat. And we've also created, I think I use like a really gross analogy, probably like when a whale dies in the ocean, its body sinks to the bottom of the seabed and it creates this ecosystem of like all of this other life that comes and feeds on this whale. A webinar is like that for us. So we do a webinar and now I have an asset that I can use in our lifecycle marketing that we can chop up into shorter videos that we can run as ads that we can put in our knowledge base that we can include in the product. And we've been doing that and we just get like so much more value out of these programs than we were getting before. And it required a lot more preparation. But at the end of the day, like you still got to run a webinar, like you still have to do all of the work. Right. So, yeah, I think that was the program that we we sort of rebooted just with me. And now that we've sort of established we've done five or six of them now that we've established this is how we do this. We're starting to open it back up to have other people come as well. But now that there's a little bit of a brand associated with the webinar, I think our guests were able to we're able to explain to them that like, hey, we're going to rehearse this like for real. And if you want to understand why, like, here's the other webinars we've done. And like, this is how we do it here. And we don't get pushback from that. Right. Like people want to participate and make content at that level. Those are incredible numbers, first off. But I would just add that, you know, like we do prep calls for the vast majority of the shows that we do it for Remarkable. We do it for a lot of the shows that we create the vast majority of people want to make something great and like are actually excited to do that compared to when you ask them to do a customer testimonial and they're like, oh my God, this is going to be horrible if they can get approval, if they can do that stuff. And I think it's just like, just like with gated content, ungated content, it's like, hey, for the right person, just find the path of least resistance that gets them to make something great with you, right? 
and I think that it's really cool to hear that you've had on the actual creation of these webinars, positivity from the people that you're co-creating the content with. And obviously the results from your viewers is ridiculous. You mentioned you don't promote them. Why don't you promote them more? Well, we do promote the webinar, the live webinar, but my team has been so small and understaffed until very recently. I went from two people in April to eight this week. Hey now. Yeah, which is a lot for me, but we don't promote the YouTubes. Like we just like do the event, we promote the webinar just via email to our database. And then the people who attend can watch live. The people who don't attend get a link to watch it in our webinar program called Goldcast. And then after that's done, whenever we like get around to it, we're like, oh man, like get out of the post webinar haze. We throw it on YouTube and I've just not had any bodies to throw at YouTube. We just like don't do anything with it, but people find them and like thousands of people find them and watch them, which is that to me was the most surprising thing. They just kind of have a life of their own outside of, of the program itself. You know, what marketers typically think about is like the campaign that you're running. You mentioned that you expanded your team to eight people. How did you make those investments and how did you justify those investments? Yeah, well, part of the reason I did a lot of this work myself was to sort of show the business what a content marketer really can do and like what that actually means. I think Apollo has had historically weak content marketing and has been product led almost entirely. And so we didn't really have a framework. There was like no you know, they're like, yeah, we, we know that you guys do a webinar, but like, they didn't know what I meant by like, no, but I'm going to do a webinar. Like, this is like a different thing, but we're going to write a blog. Like when we write an article, it's not just a blog post. So anyways, not to toot my own horn, what we ended up doing. So like, I did a lot of that work myself is the answer. Oh, still got it. I revamped our case study program. I wrote the case study and then that allowed the one employee that I had to understand the framework and she could then reproduce that. Right. And we did the same thing with like our world's bestseller series with our webinar program. From there, like my background is as an entrepreneur and in sales and in demand gen, like I really try and apply attribution at, as like one of my top priorities. So I'm always trying to measure the effect of my marketing. And then that actually makes it really easy where I'm like, hey, look at how much money I've made the company just me. Like, let me hire people and I'll make the company more money. I can't resist it either. And I'm grateful for Apollo where like that is a compelling argument here. Like there are some companies where that like for whatever reason, they're just too dumb to let you do that. But at Apollo, you're like, hey, look at this math. They're like, yeah, math is great. Go hire more people. So we got some additional headcount. And then we also started to get some asks. I, I think I got one headcount that way with just like a spreadsheet. I was like, this person can run the webinar program. This is how much money they'll make the company. Bam, headcount approved. And then the business started to come to me and ask me questions. And they were like, well, hey, how do we move up market? Like we need to resolve some issues around retention activation. Like, how do we do that? And that was a great opportunity for me as well to, argue, to, to give them answers and to say like, oh, I can totally do that. And here's how, and I just need people. And when those conversations happened, I didn't need a spreadsheet. I think we had delivered enough value to the business with so little investment outside of our time and our salaries that they were now looking for ways to, to include content as a solution to our problems. And all I had to do was just say like, yeah, here's what you do. And that was a green light. Just, yeah, go ahead, hire who you need. And then, you know, you just hired this amazing filmmaker. Like, why'd you do that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was the other half of your question, right? Like, who did I hire? So I'll, I think I've heard this bandied about a little bit. Obviously, you guys know this. People are like, the future of content is video. It's like, no, the right now of content is video. Like, the right now of the internet is video. Just right. If you look at how people are consuming content anywhere, if they're on TikTok or they're on Instagram or they're on YouTube, like what they're not doing is reading keyword stuffed articles on Google. 
So also, yeah. let's be clear, like Disney and Paramount and all these people, they didn't just invest billions of dollars in like book readers, right? Like not the books are going away, but just like right. everyone uses video. I mean, hundred percent video is the now and the future. And for us, I think for most companies, like there's a desire to do video, but video is still hard to make well and expensive to make. And so what ends up happening is that companies will go, they'll have to work with an agency. And then you're looking at something like a thousand dollars a minute of a finished product or more, depending on the kind of content that you're making. And the production timeline is so long that by the time you release the thing that you wanted to make, what you wanted to do it for is already gone, right? Like, oh, we need this video for this campaign. Well, it's a three month production timeline because you're working with an agency who has to get you on you know, their schedule and whatever. Yep. And like, you're just never able to actually make video a, a compelling part of your business strategy. So for us, it's like I mentioned this, getting the approval to hire this team kind of came out of a conversation with our CEO who asked me like, hey, it's always been a nightmare for us to make video here. How do we get an 80-20? Like, how do I get what I want from the video without having to spend, you know, a million dollars a year. And I was like, well, let me spend half a million dollars and hire the team internally or less than yes. that. Yeah. And then just having been around the block and made quite a variety of video content myself. I think this is the other thing people don't understand is that like, it's like we said earlier about Archer, like it looks simple, but it's really hard. Great video is so hard. And so I understood that like, if I want any chance at this being successful, I have to find like a generalist filmmaker who's just a baller. So I, I put a, a job posting up. We had 1,500 applicants for our head of video, which maybe at big companies isn't a lot, but for a company like Apollo's, like it's a lot of applicants. I think it's a lot of applicants. It's a lot of applicants, yeah. The one who just sort of rose to the top was somebody who had won an Emmy for a documentary he made. and was shortlisted for an Academy Award and then gone on to do commercial work at Asana and Drift and Google and Sweetgreen and like a variety of really well-known companies. So for me, I was like, great, this is somebody who I don't have to teach them what it means to make a great video. Like they know, right? I can probably learn a lot from them. And so that was, that was a fight actually. Like what the business thought we needed was something completely different. Can I ask what that was? Yeah. So we ended up hiring this as well. What the business thought that we needed, like our CEO is very, he's an engineer by training, right? And his focus was like, we, I want video in our product education flow and our new user onboarding flow. I want us to showcase what the product is and how it works. So you need to hire somebody who can animate, right? Who can take like Figma and like UI right. and they can animate that into a video. And I was like, okay, but do I really though? Or do I need somebody who like really know who like knows how to use an animator as part of a palette of tools to make a compelling video that accomplishes a goal, right? Because what's actually most effective in a video is just my face, somebody's face. Like that's way more effective than just like a UI element. So I was like overruled. Like our SVP of marketing was like, no, you need an animator. And our design team was like, no, you need an animator. And I just kept fighting them. And I was like, I'll hire the animator, but you're all wrong. And I kept going back to that. It's like, you're all wrong. My portfolio is better than all of yours. I've made more videos than all of you combined. My videos have more views than all of yours combined. None of you know what you're talking about. And I even got to the point where I was like, if you don't let me hire a generalist, I won't hire this role. Like, if you think it has to be an animator, then the design team should run it. They should hire it. They should manage it because you're setting me up to fail and I refuse to be set up to fail. And just after like a month of me being a complete like maniac and just not willing to budge on it, I got the second headcount. And that's when I was able to hire Chad, who's our head of video now. 
I love that story uh, <laughs> because it showcases how strategic content needs to be and how you can find project-based work wherever, but you can't find strategic, embedded, go-to-market thinking everywhere. And like figuring out how video fits into your go-to-market is far more important than figuring out how to do like a handful of cool projects. And like, that's a big difference. Yep. That's the world of difference. And that was the crux of the argument. I kept getting, well, it's easy to find somebody who's good behind the camera. It's easy to find a good editor. And I was like, you're missing the point. Like, hey, no, it's not. It's actually not that easy. Yeah, and also it's ridiculously hard. That's yeah, not true. It's ridiculously difficult. There's a reason that there are unions and the people who are really good at this make a lot of money. And also, but B, and the other part of it is like, that's just the smallest part. And that's what I, t I tell my marketers that too. I'm like, I had a conversation with a junior marketer on my team. She's feeling overwhelmed by her role and what I was asking her to do. And she said, you know, the value I bring to the company is making really good content. And you're just pushing me way outside of my, my comfort limit. And I said to her, I was like, I think you misunderstand. Making good content is the easiest part of our job. That's not hard at all. It's everything else that goes around that. How do you get the content in the right person's hands at the right time? How do you measure whether it worked or not? How do you like make that scalable, right? That's what it is to be a marketer. So like, I wouldn't even hire you if I didn't think you can make good content. I'm not even willing to talk to you. It's understanding how to use that as a business person to accomplish the business's goals. That's what's hard. And that's why I'm pushing you to do it. And like, that's what your job is at the end of the day. And I think that light bulb went off for her and she was like, damn it. <laughs> like, ah, oh, that actually makes sense. Uh, videos the same way. Josh, awesome having you on the show. Thanks so much. We could talk to you for hours and we'll, we'll catch up soon for our listeners. Go tell your salespeople, go to Apollo.io, go check out one of those world famous webinars. There's always one coming up around the corner and, and go watch the old ones on replay. Any final thoughts, anything to plug? No, I just really appreciate y'all having me here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Josh. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. In today's episode, you heard from Caspian Studios CEO, Ian Faison, and myself, Meredith Gooderham, senior producer at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by me and mixed by Francie Goudreau. Our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. 